1: I'm Anthony Brooks in for Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Well, we all know what happened this week. At its core, this case today is one with allegations like so many of our white-collar cases. Allegations that someone lied again and again to protect their interests and evade the laws to which we are all held accountable. And with that, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg pushed the country into uncharted waters, making a former American president a criminal defendant for the first time ever. Donald Trump is accused of falsifying business records to conceal other crimes. It all stems from hush money the former president allegedly paid to adult film star Stormy Daniels. And I never thought anything like this could happen in America. Trump pleaded not guilty and is now using the case to amplify his grievances and rally his Republican supporters. Here's Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Wednesday criticizing D.A. Bragg's case. That's not America. America believes in the rule of law. And the way he's stretching this, everybody knows this is not a real case. So I think for the health of America, listen to the Republicans and Democrats alike and stop playing politics with our law. The question now is, what happens next? What are the legal and political consequences of this unprecedented case? So let's start with the legal complexities. And to help us there, we're joined by Andrew Prokop. He's senior political correspondent for Vox, joins us from Washington, D.C. Andrew, great to have you. Welcome to On Point.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: We're also joined uh, by Shan Wu. He's a former federal prosecutors who, uh, prosecutor, uh, now a white-collar criminal defense attorney. He's also joining us from Washington, D.C. Shan Wu, welcome to you. It's good to have you.
3: Yeah, thanks. Good to be here.
1: And Shan, let me start with you. I want to begin um, that, about, and talk a little bit about what there's still left to learn about this indictment. Donald Trump stands accused of 34 counts of falsifying business records, uh, which would be a misdemeanor. And for this to be elevated to felony charges, D.A. Bragg has to show that these false business records were created with the intent to commit or conceal another crime. First, a very basic question. Do we know what that uh, what those other crimes or what that other crime or crimes would be?
3: Uh, We don't know uh, exactly whether it's going to be one class of them or several. Uh, Bragg alluded to three potential areas. Uh, One would be the tax fraud issue, because he uh, mentioned in the indictment that the false business records might have been a mischaracterization uh, for tax purposes, and then Number two and three would be some type of election law violation. So there's obviously the federal notion of a campaign finance violation, which is, in fact, uh, what Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, pled guilty to and served time for. Uh, And then separately, there could be a New York state uh, election law violation basis for it. So all of those were mentioned uh, by Bragg and referenced Uh, I would note that, legally speaking, they don't have to actually prove um, that other crime. Uh, It's a little bit uh, ambiguous exactly how that works. They've used this charge many times before. uh, But it's worth noting it's not as though you need to prove uh, the other one. You need to reference it and the devil's going to be in the details. Uh, I'd have to look at what kind of jury instructions actually give to the jury for the guidance on what level of evidence they need for this paired crime.
1: Yeah. Another question. There's a lot we don't know about all of the cards that D.A. Bragg is holding. And I wonder if you could talk about that. I mean, is this a deliberate strategy? And if so, what are you eager to learn about Bragg's strategy as this case moves forward?
3: It certainly is likely a uh, deliberate strategy, you know, hard to know, not in the rooms uh, with the prosecutors here. Uh, However, I would note that in New York, it would be unusual to have what's called a speaking indictment, uh, meaning one which really lays out a full story and narrative. And from a strategy point of view, that's helpful to the prosecutors. Uh, It gives the defense less of an uh, obvious target initially, Trump's lawyers will certainly learn the details. There is a discovery process in criminal cases, just as there is in civil cases. So what I'll be looking for, and what they're certainly looking for too, um, are those details as to what aspects of these potential other crimes, tax, election law, are they trying to link it to? And depending on what they say about that, uh, Trump's lawyers will be looking to make different legal attacks on those theories. Uh, so that's what I'm really looking for, is uh, what kind of nexus are they gonna make?
1: Right. Now, speak to us as a former prosecutor, and and before I moved on, move on to Andrew, I, I just wanna ask you, do you think this is a strong case? Understanding that there's still a lot we don't know about it, there's a lot more that's gonna be revealed in the weeks and months ahead, but a strong case so far, what do you think?
3: Uh, I think it is a very strong, Case, uh, I'd sort of look at this analytically in in two buckets. Uh, The first is there's going to be an onslaught of legal attacks, much more than usual, actually, because of who the defendant is. And I think that's actually the biggest hurdle for Bragg is uh, it's going to come in the form of motions to dismiss attacking the face of the indictment. Uh, obviously, those could be renewed on appeal. But you know if he survives that, which I, I think he will, and it gets to the jury, the second bucket is whether it's factually challenging or not. And I don't think it's that factually challenging. It's a pretty straightforward tale, which is you know a man who is trying to buy silence. And that part, I think the jury will easily understand. Uh, And I think the witnesses, including Cohen, which we can talk about more later, I think Cohen will actually be a very strong witness.
1: Yeah, I definitely want to talk about uh, Cohen and what kind of witness he'll make. Uh, Andrew Prokop, let me move move on to you. Donald Trump and many of his Republican supporters have called this case politically motivated. You looked into this idea and, and measured this case against a number of criteria and concluded that it does seem to be politically motivated. And you start with this idea that this looks like the result of a fishing expedition, a case that begins in one direction and sort of ends up somewhere else entirely. Can, Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so my perspective from this is shaped by, you know, years of covering the Trump Justice Department and his efforts to politicize the rule of law there to turn it against his opponents. Also, some further back history about investigations of the Clintons dating back to the 90s. And I am uh, interested in this question of, you know, we don't want our politicians to be above the law, but we also don't want them to be targeted uh, unusually so for political reasons, by uh, the law, and so I do think it's important to kind of assess uh, fair-mindedly what is happening here, and I'm not inclined to defend Donald Trump as, as a sterling adherent to the rule of law. Uh, there. Are, this is only one of four major investigations into him that are taking place right now. Uh, we've got the two federal investigations under special counsel Jack Smith, uh, one relating to uh, his Trump's post-election conduct and one relating to his um, um, hoarding classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and then there's also another election-related investigation in Georgia. All of those investigations seem to me to be quite... Uh, uh, strongly predicated and focused on on matters of importance, they seem to be proceeding with with integrity and, and so on. Um, this has always been the investigation that stood out to me as more politicized than the others. And a lot of that is because of the long tangled backstory of how this came about. It dates back to 2019 when essentially the federal government was investigating Trump for this Um, matter of the hush money payments that uh, Michael Cohen gave to Stormy Daniels, Cohen pleaded guilty, and then the question was whether Trump, individual one, would then be charged. But the feds did not end up charging Trump, so then uh, (laughs) Manhattan District Attorney at the time, Cyrus Vance, decided to look into it. And he started by looking at these hush money payments, and then the investigation sprawled more widely. He looked... Uh, he scrutinized the whole Trump organization's business practices. Looked into this matter of real estate uh, valuations, something else that Cohen had spoken about, whether they were improperly valuing their real estate and deceiving lenders in that way. He looked. He tried uh, very hard to flip uh, the CFO Alan Weiselberg, charging him in another case about uh, fringe benefits that Weiselberg didn't properly pay taxes on. Weissberg didn't really flip. He pleaded guilty in that case. Uh, And then and then what happened though is that Alvin Bragg took over from Vance. And initially, when Bragg took over, he seemed to want to wash his hands of this case. He didn't buy it uh, the real estate, the big real estate case that Vance's team was trying to make. He met with the top prosecutors and he basically signaled he wasn't going to move forward when they had hoped an indictment was imminent. So those prosecutors quit, Bragg faced huge political backlash, and then he appears to have um, rethought things and to have circled back After several years back to this original matter of the hush money, what had been referred to internally in the office as the Mm -hmm. zombie legal theory, because no one was really sure whether they wanted to go forward with this. They weren't entirely convinced about, you know, that it was important enough, that it was uh, that the evidence was strong enough, that the legal reasoning of making it a felony was strong enough. There were real divisions (laughs) inside the office. But in the end, he decided to go for it. And the question of whether that calculation was shaped more by a desire to to get Donald Trump than by a desire to kind of fair-mindedly assess uh, the rule of law and the strength of the case is is an important question here
1: all right Andrew so we're gonna we're gonna pick up this uh, after the break and and discuss this more at length but Shan Wu, before we go to the break we've got about 30 seconds a quick response I mean does uh, respond to Andrew's point here that this look this long secure su- circuitous route sort of leads to this conclusion that this was an effort to get Trump
3: sure, sure. Um, I think the quick response is that the reason it's been a long circuitous route route is political, which is that DOJ failed to do what they should have done for political reasons. They didn't pursue Trump at the right times. And I don't really know why Bragg backed off the original investigation being worked up by Cyrus Vance, because that was very well worked up. They took it all the way to Supreme Court um, on that particular investigation. So. I think I don't know what caused Bragg to punt on that one. In right. um, looking at the public reporting, it seems like he has legitimately looked at the evidence here very carefully before going forward.
1: All right. Well, we're going to talk more about all of this after this break. We are talking about uh, the indictment of Donald Trump, the political, uh, and in, in, in this part of the show, the legal implications of this case and where it takes us from here. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. We'll be right back after a short break.
2: That's ShipStation.com with the code POD.
1: This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. Today, we're discussing the legal and political implications of the case against Donald Trump, the first U.S. president to ever face, the first former U.S. president and president, for that matter, to to ever face criminal indictment. We're joined by Shan Wu, former federal prosecutor. He's now a white-collar criminal defense attorney, and Andrew Prokop, senior political correspondent for Vox. And Andrew, I want to come back to you because there's more in your piece and your thinking about what makes this a political um, case, in your view, the prosecution. Sort of politically motivated, and one of the questions you ask is, um, does it feature novel or um, or contested legal theories? And, and and you say in this case, absolutely. Talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, this relates to the issue of making these misdemeanor, um, business records, falsification charges against Trump, according to New York state law, into felonies and justifying why they are being charged as felonies. And there are a whole lot of thorny issues at play here where, you know, according to experts I've spoken to, you could argue them both ways. The answers are genuinely unclear about how they will end up if they are, if they do face a vigorous challenge, federal courts and state courts um, could both come into play, depending on exactly what Bragg ends up arguing. But the gist is, as Shan explained, that the, that for the felony charge to, to be made, the Trump had to have had the intent to commit or conceal another crime. And there has been reported on in the past uh, month or so, uh, it's been reported that Bragg's office has been kind of searching about for what exactly he was going to say this other crime was. And we still don't have the answer yet again as shan mentioned bragg alluded to several possibilities and he does not have to provide an answer yet but you know the one of them involves uh, the federal election law violation that right. cohen in fact pleaded guilty to that the idea here is that this was a Violation of federal campaign finance law, these hush money payments to Stormy Daniels made by Michael Cohen uh, because uh, they should have been disclosed as a campaign donation to Donald Trump because these payments were had the purpose of helping him win the presidential election in 2016, uh, and also they should have been subject to contribution limits. So then the question is, okay, can Bragg actually cite a federal crime as the other crime that, that Trump is trying to commit. Some people argue he can. Others argue that um, that's not so clear, and that's something that, that will be the subject, likely, of some challenges. Mm. Uh, if he is relying on federal campaign finance crime, there's another question about whether the Supreme Court of the United States would actually agree that a federal campaign finance crime even took place here. Yes, Cohen did plead guilty for this, but uh, Attorney General Bill Barr sharply disputed internally that uh, their legal reasoning there uh, he does not want campaign finance law to be did not want campaign finance law to be applied in this way and a lot of the conservatives on the court might have some sympathy there so So, that could be a problem
1: yeah that could be so shan what do you what do you think uh, about this does this feature novel or or contested legal theories and does that um, complicate alan bragg's job here
3: yeah, I don't think uh, it does for this reason. Um, the mere fact that Trump's team is going to contest it, that's their job. I don't think that transforms it into a novel theory. And there's certainly arguments they can make. The reason I don't think it's novel is because this particular pairing of the falsification with other crimes is used you know, a great deal in New York. I mean, there's <clears throat> commentators who point out you know it's easily over 100 times you can find cases for it. And we don't know if the issue of the federal charge is going to be the basis for that. So that's why I don't think it's necessarily novel at this point. We just don't know enough about it to call it novel. I do want to say that as a former federal prosecutor, I think prosecutors generally are too risk-averse. <laughs> so I applaud um, Bragg going forward with the case. And what's really novel about it, obviously, is who the defendant is uh, You wouldn't have a lot of instances like this. So I, I, I think it's a little bit uh, Inaccurate to think that's that novel legally because we just don't know that much about it yet.
1: Interesting um, Shan, you brought up um, the idea of, of one of the key witnesses is likely to be Michael Cohen uh, Donald Trump's former fixer uh, questions are raised obviously about his credibility. What kind of complications does that present?
3: Yeah, that one, I think, a little bit too much attention paid to that because cooperators like Cohen are used every day successfully in prosecutions across the United States, state and federal. Uh, They are well prepared uh, to fend off uh, cross-examination of Cohen. And as cooperators go, uh, Cohen is hardly an unknown entity. I mean, he has been uh, very visible in public, going over his version of facts for years at this point. Uh, And while he certainly is uh, very gregarious and verbose, he's been quite consistent on the facts. So based on that, I think he's going to withstand the cross pretty well.
1: Yeah. What do you think? Uh, What do do you think about that, Andrew? Do you agree with that? Disagree? Uh,
3: I I don't know exactly.
2: I, I don't. I don't really think the jury will be the biggest problem for Alvin Bragg in this case. This is going to be a New York City jury, and they will not really be inclined to give Donald Trump the benefit of the doubt, necessarily. Uh, I think it's more specifically this question of these, these pretrial and perhaps post-trial uh, challenges that will end up, um, depending on the exact arguments that he makes, uh, ended up being decided by, by other courts.
1: Yeah. I guess I was asking specifically about the idea of Michael Cohen as a witness and and his level of credibility, if you've given some thought to that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Cohen has stuck pretty closely to his story. It's been about five years since he essentially came forward. He has some... Documentation. He wrote a book. You know, if if Co- if Cohen is describing something he told Donald Trump in private, some things that were said by only the two of them, uh, and it's his word against Trump's, uh, I I don't really, I don't think it would be too much of a problem for for, um, depending on exactly who's on the jury or what they think, uh, for a jury to end up thinking that Cohen was a little more convincing there and and Trump maybe not so much.
1: Yeah. And Shan, I mean, this very basic fact that in 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty, uh, they were federal crimes, it needs to be pointed out, um, including campaign finance violations involving the hush money. Uh, He went to jail uh, for that, what kind of, doesn't that weigh, uh, I mean, how, how am I trying to ask this question? Doesn't that help Bragg's case, the fact that someone else went to jail for a crime in which Donald Trump was implicated?
3: Yes, I, I think it does. Uh, the the counter to that is to say, oh, you know, he is a convicted felon. You can't trust people like that. But to your point, I mean, exactly what he actually pled guilty to and was punished for was the exact facts here, and the defendant, Trump, has never been punished for it. Uh, I also think the fact that he pled guilty to that, and DOJ basically agreed that that's what happened, even though they didn't charge Trump, that has to be, from a prosecutor standpoint, very, very tempting to want to rely on that as much as possible, because it's pretty much a done deal. Those facts can't be challenged.
1: Right. You know, one of the issues is um, some of the critics are saying that this focuses on a rather obscure technical matter. And I want to ask you both, is that really true? Because as many of us have learned following this case, falsifying business records turns out to be the bread and butter of white collar prosecutions. So Shan Wu, let me come to you first on on that. I mean, how much of a reach is this, given how often these kinds of cases are prosecuted?
3: Yeah, I, I don't think it's much of a reach at all, um, except for this open legal question which may or may not uh you know come to a head, which is are they gonna heavily rely on the federal campaign violation? And I certainly do think uh he's, Bragg has given himself a sort of a menu of choices here. So if he relies on New York state election law and the federal law and maybe tax issues Even if he runs into an obstacle on the federal campaign violation reliance, he still has the other two to go to. So I don't think it's going to be that much of a reach. There's certainly going to be a fight about it.
1: Yeah. And Andrew, what happens next? Uh, I'm thinking of discovery when prosecutors have to turn over a lot of their evidence to defense. What what, what are we going to learn from that process? What are you sort of uh, interested to understand about, about this next phase?
2: Well, I'm really looking forward to or looking toward the legal challenges for the basis of this case, a potential motion to dismiss or certain motion to dismiss from the Trump team, whether he will decide to challenge it in federal court in some way and also learning more about what Bragg eventually decides on as his justification for these felony charges out of these three options that he has. It's possible he'll argue for um, all three uh, and then to you know ha- try to retain those options in hopes that one of them will survive the challenges that Trump will bring. But you know if he invokes federal, law as a justification then that would open the door to a challenge in federal court there's also um, some have argued an issue with the state campaign finance law justification because there uh, some question whether the state campaign finance law could actually apply to a federal campaign which Trump uh, was actually participating in so like that could be another avenue to a challenge that ends up in federal court and federal court I think is perhaps, maybe not the place that Bragg necessarily wants to go if um if this is something that Trump decides he wants to take to the Supreme Court. Um you know, often Trump's um if we think back to Trump's post election legal challenges, uh, those were all kind of you know, the Supreme Court didn't buy any of that. They didn't side with him Uh, On that. But there is a lot of thinking among conservatives now that uh, that this is a a political case and and that um, the conservative justices on the Supreme Court might be more inclined to intervene in something like this if they feel it really is uh, out of the norm.
1: Mm. Shan Wu, I'd love to talk to you about a little history uh, I- involving a similar case. So during the 2008 Democratic presidential primary campaign, uh, Democrat John Edwards organized payoffs to an ex-lover. He was later charged by federal prosecutors with violating campaign finance laws. Um, so a lot of similarities there. A jury acquitted Edwards on one count, deadlocked on the others. Is there something to learn from the John Edwards case about, uh, about this case going forward?
3: Uh, there's definitely a factual similarity of uh, uh, both, you know, involved situations uh, where the defendant was having a, uh, an extramarital affair. I think uh, a key difference is obviously the Edwards case was purely federal. Uh, interesting historical footnote, the prosecutor in that case was Jack Smith, the current special counsel. <laughs> so that's <laughs> an interesting tie in there. Uh, I have always said that uh Edwards, who himself was extremely skilled uh, civil plaintiff's lawyer, that Edwards, uh, to the extent he had a hand in his own defense, really won that case sitting at the defense table. Uh, He also was a far more likable and sympathetic defendant uh, than Trump will be. And so from a jury appeal standpoint, you know, to Andrew's point about a Manhattan jury, Uh, you know, Edwards was a very likable kind of sympathetic figure. I don't think Trump is going to have that advantage. So factually there, I think Trump's team is at at a big disadvantage. And legally, the big distinction is that was a purely federal campaign case, uh, campaign violation case and was brought under the federal statute and by DOJ.
1: Well, I want to play a little bit of tape here. Um, Trump um, appeared uh, much diminished in court on Tuesday, but After uh, he was indicted, he flew back to Mar a Lago and reverted to form, giving a speech attacking the prosecutor, the judge, the judge's family, and, and the rest of his critics. We are a nation in decline, and now these radical left lunatics want to interfere with our elections by using law enforcement. We can't let that happen. So that was uh, Donald Trump after he was indicted, speaking in Mar-a-Lago. Andrew, of course, um, the judge in the case uh, urged Trump's lawyers to convince um, their client, Mr. Trump, not to use inflammatory language that 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 may interfere with 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 the with with this case going forward in various ways. Um, and I'm just curious uh, <laughs> how that is going to play out um, because uh, Trump, at least initially, didn't really seem to uh, listen to what the judge had to say about that.
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't think any of us know how this is going to play out. Uh, Trump is the presidential front runner for the Republican Party. He is going to be campaigning. He's going to be talking about this stuff all the time. You can't realistically. I don't think it would hold up for First Amendment reasons. Uh, to to. Um, to fully gag him from talking about this case, like that's something that would, that would face some some serious scrutiny from higher judges. Uh, the, I mean, one comparison that I think about is I covered the uh, the Roger Stone case, and he posted a, a meme online with uh, crosshairs over the head of uh, the judge in his case, and um, the judge <laughs> g- gagged him pretty uh, pretty. Um, you know in a no nonsense manner said that nothing like this would be acceptable anymore and and he kind of adhered to that but you know trump does not believe that normal rules and laws and norms Apply to him, and uh, I I tend to suspect that if the judge attempts to gag him, he, he, if it is, it might be something limited, like you know, don't encourage violence or something like that. Right. But then what, the question is, what counts as encouraging violence? Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you define that? Distinguish between that and, and just general political attacks.
1: Shan, how do you see this this, this playing out, and, and the kind of challenge it it uh, presents for Judge Marchand?
3: Uh, it does present a challenge for him. Uh, he's going to want to not appear as though any sort of restriction is overly restrictive. Uh, I do think that Trump is going to tend to continuously blunder into whatever set of norms the judge puts out for him. I and, mean, for example, the latest thing that got posted in relation to this, a picture of the judge's daughter. I mean, it's very hard to understand how that is part of the uh, campaign point and not more of a threat to the judge's family so i think the judge is early on given notice that he's paying attention to this and he's going to seek some way to rein in trump's rhetoric so that it doesn't incite violence and doesn't uh, interfere with the integrity of the case
0: right. i think
3: it's going to come up quite a few times i think the roger stone analogy uh, is a very good one and it's uh, it's hard to imagine but i think Trump is harder to control than Roger Stone, actually, so uh, it'll be quite a challenge.
1: All right, we're going to be talking more about the political um, consequences of all this in the next segment. Shan Wu, former federal prosecutor, he's now a white-collar criminal defense attorney. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate
3: it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: And Andrew Prokop, senior politics uh, correspondent at Fox, stay with us. Uh, when we return, more on this, we'll consider the political consequences of this unprecedented case. I'm Anthony Brooks, this is On Point.
0: Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I
3: think you're one of the first people to have actually asked.
1: This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We've been talking about the legal implications of the case against Donald Trump, the first U.S. president to ever be criminally indicted. Let's shift to the political consequences. With me is Andrew Prokop, senior political correspondent from Vox. And joining us is Sarah Longwell. She's the executive director of the Republican Accountability Project, as well as the publisher of The Bulwark and host of the podcast, The Focus Group. Sarah Longwell, great to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk to you a little bit about sort of the rally around Trump effect of all of this. There's a a, a lot of folks who are um, coming to his defense or at least voicing criticism uh, about this indictment. And I want to start with a statement from Mitt Romney. It's surprising. Mitt Romney voted to impeach Donald Trump. And he put out a statement that said, I believe Trump's character and conduct make him unfit for office. That was the preamble. Even so, I believe the New York prosecutor has stretched to reach felony criminal charges in order to fit a political agenda. Uh, so, that a statement from uh, Utah Senator Mitt Romney. Um, what do you think, Sarah? What, what are you seeing uh, in terms of this
0: rally around Trump uh, effect of this prosecution? Yeah. So I've, I conduct focus groups weekly and I have for years now. And I've seen this uh, rally around Trump effect before uh, when he's been impeached both times. Uh, republican base voters tend to really come to his aid and feel aggrieved on his behalf. And that creates a a force for both Republican politicians as well as sort of the entire right-wing media ecosystem to also rush to Trump's defense, which, you know, in turn creates sort of a a big sort of reinforcing megaphone of support for Trump. And I think that's um, what you see happening Right now, uh, and th- right now though is actually even more interesting because we're it's in the context of the 2024 elections, right. which means that Trump actually has people for whom this should be a political opening, um, or who might be looking to seize on this, and and this is where the fundamental dynamic of. The base voters commitment to Donald Trump, you can really see it exerting its force because even his competitors like Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, um, they all feel the need to come out and defend Donald Trump. And one of Donald Trump's sort of superpowers um, in a in a negative way, I don't want it to sound like it's a positive thing, but he is able to turn uh Basically, he lives by that old adage, you know, there's no such thing as bad press, because for Donald Trump, his kryptonite is people ignoring him. And so as long as everyone's talking about him, as long as everyone's focused on him, he can essentially relegate these competitors uh, to sort of supporting cast members in his drama. And uh, and he can create uh, the story where basically we're all talking about him and only him, and it helps propel him into that sort of front-runner status um, and so when I talk about the rally around Trump effect, it's all of those things sort of all coming together at once, which is, I think, what's happening right now.
1: Right. Well, let's hear from Governor, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who, who hasn't officially entered the presidential race, but but he is the uh, presumed con- contender for the Republican presidential nomination. Um, and in a speech on Saturday at the Pennsylvania Leadership Conference, DeSantis called the charges against Trump political.
2: So now he turns around purely for political purposes and indicts a former president on misdemeanor offenses that they're straining to try to convert into felonies. That is when you know that the law has been weaponized for political purposes. That is when you know that the left is using that to target their political opponents.
1: So, Andrew Prokop, let me come to you with with this question. I mean, Ron DeSantis in in an interesting position there because uh, probably a presumed competitor of Donald Trump's uh, for the Republican presidential nomination, but kind of rallying to the president's uh, the former president's defense there.
2: Yes, and I think it's interesting too because you mentioned Romney, and Romney is not running for president in 2024, as far as I know. and uh, But he came to the same conclusion. And so I do think part of this is stemming from the nature of the case itself and the nature of the ambiguities and perhaps weaknesses in the case. But of course, most Republicans would want to defend Trump regardless, even if it was a really strong case. And especially if you're a Republican presidential contender, um, it doesn't really uh, redound to your benefit to say, oh, Donald Trump is a bad criminal, that's the challenge that all of these people who want to supplant Trump are facing, because if they go too openly and directly negative against Trump, two things happen. One is that The voters won't necessarily like that. The other is that Trump will hit back much harder, and uh, as we saw back in 2016, uh, more brutally uh, with his own negative attacks. So it's very difficult. A couple weeks ago um, when this came up, uh, DeSantis tried to slip in a little dig there. He tried to do it a little more subtly. He, He said something about, uh, yeah, I wouldn't know, you know about all... hush
1: payments to to to, to former adults. Yeah, he film didn't know stars. anything yeah, about hush right. payments. He wouldn't to know about that star. sort of stuff, right?
2: Got to ask someone else about that. So, <laughs> I mean, he's he's looking, I think, for ways to do it, right. but I, it's going to be tough to to pull it
1: off, right? Sarah, you mentioned um, that you did a focus group with former Trump voters after the indictment was announced. What did you find specifically? What was the result of that focus group that tells us something about the temperature right now of these Trump supporters?
0: Yeah, so this was a focus group the day after the indictment came down, and it was with sort of general two-time Trump voters. They'd already voted for Trump in 16 and 20. And I talk to this type of group a lot. And most of this year, uh, if you just talk to two-time Trump voters, there's a big appetite in that group to move on from Donald Trump, um, particularly to Ron DeSantis. You'd usually get half the group or more saying, you know, I think Trump has too much baggage. I think we need somebody new. But in this group, the day after the indictment, it was the first time that the entire group said they wanted to vote for Trump in 2024. Mm. And the intensity was much higher. Um, You know, they were ready to buy, should it become available, a T-shirt with Donald Trump's mugshot on it. They said they were more likely to give him money. They said the indictment was pushing them more uh, to want to vote for him. And one of the most interesting things about the group is you heard people really parroting back the things that were coming out of the media. So you heard a woman say, uh, if they can do this to Donald Trump with all his resources, then they can do that to me, which of course has been uh, very much the messaging strategy, both of Trump and all of his surrogates, is to kind of, continue to tether these voters to Trump to say, my grievance is your grievance. I am your retribution. You know, we are one uh, in this way, which is a particular thing that Donald Trump is capable of doing um, that a lot of these other candidates aren't. And I'll, and I'll tell you, the other thing about Ron DeSantis, you know, he has had real I mean, he really is the person I hear in these groups all the time that, that people are interested in and looking to the future. Uh, but his inability to figure out how uh, when Trump is having these legal troubles how to sort of attack him or how to go after him is going to become sort of a constant problem because these legal issues aren't going away the the there will be likely more indictments um, there will be uh, the news cycle that is just filled with Donald Trump and if Ron DeSantis doesn't find his footing, in order to figure out how to go on offensive against Trump and make an offensive sort of pitch for himself, he's going to find himself talking about Donald Trump all the time in an effort not to offend uh, these base voters. Because they tell you one of the things that's in the focus groups, even for voters who want to move on to Ron DeSantis, they still like Trump. Mm. In fact, the way that they talk about DeSantis is in the context of Trump. They say Ron DeSantis is Trump without the baggage. He's Trump but he hasn't alienated so many people. Um, and, and it, but the, you know, if, if Ron DeSantis over time, though, just doesn't seem like he's up to it, like one of the big factors in the political side of this is the quality of Trump's opponents, right? Can Ron DeSantis uh, prove that they should go with him over this sort of original OG MAGA guy with Trump? Um, and I think Ron DeSantis, uh, as we've seen him in the past few weeks, has been failing to make that case. And that's why in this group, it was both a renewed interest in Trump, as well as sort of a diminishing enthusiasm for DeSantis. In fact, some of them actually said DeSantis was a bit swampy, which is again, echoing kind of Trump's messaging about DeSantis. Interesting.
1: Andrew, I'm just wondering, you know, listening to Sarah there talking about the results of that uh, focus group the day after not a single person had, you know, everyone in the focus group w- was was all in for Trump. That was the day after the indictment. Do you think that kind of support among the base lasts? Because I guess I'm thinking of this this idea. No press is bad, they say. I think you said that, Sarah, and I know that that maxim makes a lot of sense. But do you think it's even true in this case? I mean, I'm not sure there's a political consultant out there who would recommend getting indicted to improve your chances of winning an election. Um, I mean, let me sort of throw that idea out to both of you. Andrew, I'll start with you.
2: It's generally been a bad idea to make the bet that the Republican base is going to turn against Donald Trump soon. Uh, We've seen that for eight years running now. Um, But I will say that, you know, this isn't the end of the story. There are going to be more indictments likely coming down, um, perhaps federal indictments. uh, And, you know, this is going to keep happening. And that could help Trump further by keeping him in the news. But I do think that the path, the appeal that DeSantis does have to some Republican voters, the best argument that he can make is that he can win and that Trump lost. Like Trump tried to run a presidential election against Joe Biden and he lost. Um, Of course, Trump disputes that he lost at all. He says the election was stolen from him and many Republicans agree. But the idea that, hey, maybe Republicans would be better served by moving on from Trump and picking someone uh, less polarizing, although DeSantis himself has become polarizing in his own ways. uh, But the 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 narrative Trump does not want to catch on is that he is a loser. That's something that was not in play in 2016. People argued that he could lose the general, but he he had not lost before, and he kept just winning those primaries. He he seemed to keep on winning. So he's very, I think, afraid of 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 being pegged as a as a potential loser and he does not want that idea to spread among republicans so mm-hmm. to the extent that further legal problems can help kind of plant that seeds to help make some Republican voters uh, say, hey, you know, maybe this would be a bad idea. That is a path, perhaps, that DeSantis or someone else can use. But I wouldn't say, uh, from my vantage point, it's it's the most likely thing to happen at this point, probably. The, the problem with that is that like those arguments don't inspire passion, and Trump still does inspire passion and loyalty.
1: Right. Sarah Longwell, do you think that support that you uh, got a sense of uh, from that focus group the day after the indictments were handed down, do you think that support will last um, even as we look toward um, possibly more indictments down the road from these other cases, whether it's Jack Smith's investigation or uh, the, the, the case down in Georgia around election interference?
0: Yeah. I mean, you really have to make a distinction when evaluating whether this helps or hurts Trump between the primary and the general election. This absolutely does not help him in a general election context. I mean, I talk to swing voters all the time. Um, They not only is Donald Trump poison to many of these swing voters, but also anybody who's running in a Trumpy style. You know, we saw this in 2022, where sort of these more extreme candidates that were running on election denialism and had the extreme views on abortion that the voters rejected them um, in a lot of these swing states. But in the Republican primary right now, because of the dynamics that we were talking about before, um, you know, I I keep saying to people, this is going to help Trump in the short term, but it depends on how long short-term is. Is short-term two weeks or is short-term the duration of a Republican primary? And I think a lot of that has to do really with two factors that we've been talking about. Um, One is do the... Do the incoming other indictments continue to cause everybody to talk about Trump so much that there's no space for these other candidates to make an affirmative case for themselves because they're too busy um, talking about Trump? Uh, and then the other is this question of Trump's opponents and their abilities, right? Can Ron DeSantis make this electability argument? I agree that the electability argument really is his best pitch. That's the ones that, that's the one that there's already a chunk of the party really aware of, and they believe. Look, we got to have somebody who can win, and I think that person is DeSantis. Um, but you know, for a long time, DeSantis has been kind of hype. Um, he's, he's been, you know, they've seen him on Fox news, yelling at teenagers in masks and fighting with Disney. And the question is, is what can he do on a national stage? And what can he do when he's toe to toe with Donald Trump? And I think that, uh, hasn't been tested yet. And as we all know, Donald Trump's vicious attacks have felled a lot of other Republicans who have sort of tried to go head to head with him. It's not an easy thing. He's very, um, You know, he's very despicable in the way he attacks people and candidates aren't used to that. And sometimes when they try to go toe to toe or emulate him, it doesn't look it doesn't work as well for them as it does for Trump.
1: Um, Andrew, I'm curious how the fundraising efforts have been going for Donald Trump since this indictment. Um, I was struck by uh, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham um, the other day going on Fox News News and literally begging supporters to give money to the former president uh, and criminal defendant. Here he is.
3: I'm sorry, I'm so upset, but please help President Trump. If you can afford five or 10 bucks, if you can't afford a dollar
2: fine, just pray. Make sure you vote as early as you can in your state. Don't risk anything anymore. Vote as soon as you can. Pray for this country, pray for this president. And if you got any money to give, give it.
1: So Andrew, what do we know in the sort of final 30 seconds here about um, how folks have responded to pleas like that?
2: the money has been pouring in is raising millions and millions uh it's but money was never going to be donald trump's problem in the primary Uh, it is though a sign of continued grassroots support continued grassroots enthusiasm for him.
1: So we've got to leave it there. Andrew Prokop, senior political correspondent from Fox, thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And Sarah Longwell, she's the executive director of the Republican Accountability Project, as well as publisher of The Bulwark and host of the podcast, The Focus Group. Sarah, great to have you. Thanks for being on the show as well. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Have a great weekend. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point.